Well, it's sort of a, a week where we feel a sense of hope, don't we? Like, like a lot of us, we feel some hope. Maybe uh, you are looking forward to Saturday morning, Christmas morning. There's hope. Right? You made your list. You're sure there's going to be some deliveries. What are you hoping for on Christmas morning? Right? So some of you got that. Some of you are hoping not for something wrapped in paper under a tree, but people that you love gathering in your home. So maybe you're a parent and your kids have spread far and wide, and this is the week they're all starting to gather again, and you live in the hopefulness of that. We, we feel hope, particularly this week. We, we easily feel hope. And one of the things that we enjoy about that is it can help us kind of think, well, then maybe the world isn't so bad, right? So we can push away the hard, we can push away the stuff, the muck, the mire, we can kind of push it away if we live in this. And sometimes we will feel frustrated even by hope. Well, we kind of thinking, is it more than wishful thinking? Is it more than just a mental exercise that pushes off the ugh for a bit? Yes, hope is so much more than that. Hope is so much more than a wish or a fantasy. Hope is a man and his name is Jesus. And there's something that changed, that profoundly changed when he was born. This is what we look towards. This is what we remember. This is what we anchor our hope in. Our hope is in him. And so we find hope in this season. And we still wrestle with living in a world that doesn't feel good, right? There's this dissonance that is true for us. And many of you are walking through times right now that are incredibly difficult. What do we do with suffering? What, we do, what do we do with the sinful brokenness of this world? We experience this in racism, sexism, ageism. We experience this in, um, in, in incredible lack in the face of such plenty. We experience this in frustrations in our work and our relationships. We experience this in betrayal and brokenness. We experience this in great greed and pride, Right? The sin that we try to keep contained comes lurking out. What do we do with this? And, and, and where is God in the midst of it? And how can we have hope in the midst of these things? Okay? This is what we want to explore today as we take another look at the Magnificat, Mary's song, Mary, this hymn attributed to Mary. And again, in different places, maybe you've even heard it called the Magnificat. It just comes from the first line where, uh, depending on the translation, she'll say something like, my soul magnifies the Lord. The translation we typically read from will use, um, my soul glorifies the Lord. So it's a, so we, I guess we could call it the Glorificat or something like that. But, but we're just kind of sticking with the typical name for it. And so we're listening to, to Mary's song here this morning and letting it do something in us as it sparks hope in us. Uh, Joe last week did a phenomenal job uh, kind of talking about Mary and giving us the context for that. So I'm not going to revisit that. If you didn't catch Joe's message last week, you can do that online uh, and I encourage you to do so. So we're reading the same passage but we're continuing to, to harvest and mine goodness and hope out of it, all right? So I want to read it beginning at verse 46. So this is Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 46. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 46. 
And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mm, There's such rich hope in this hymn that Mary gives us. And as we read this today, as we take it in today, we do so proclaiming that in the midst of a world held hostage by the powers of sin, decay, and death, God, through Jesus, launches a revolution that reorders reality and renews all creation. Let me pray for us. Jesus, do this renewing work in us today through the power of your Spirit. We submit ourselves to you and we ask that you would alive and hope in us, that you would awaken hope in us as we catch even just a glimpse of who you are and what you are doing in our midst. Fill us with hope. Father, by the power of your spirit, would you open our eyes to see what we are so often blind to. We don't think we're blind, but we are, and we miss so much of what you try to show us. But open our eyes today that we might see. Would you, by the power of your spirit, open our ears from the things that we are deaf to? We just miss. We don't hear you. But speak to us and open our ears that we might hear. And would you take our hard, stubborn hearts and soften them through the power of your spirit. Make us good soil, receptive to the seed of your word here today, that we might be changed and bear fruit through your work in us today, tomorrow, and beyond. We pray this in humility, and we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. In the midst of a world held hostage by the powers of sin, decay, and death, God, through Jesus, launches a revolution that reorders reality and renews all things. Right? There's this seedbed of hope in this. But we also need to be real about our context. Sometimes what we do is we're, as we're grappling with the yuck of our world, and it comes to us in lots of different ways, uh, we try to deny it. So we'll kind of pretend it's not there. So we've got our eternal optimists. You might have married one of those. Or you've got this eternal optimist that kind of, it's not bad and it, we'll figure it out and we'll get there and blah, blah, blah. And, and the, so kind of this sense of denial and, and others is we're overcome by it. We're just drawn in by it. Those of you optimists, you probably married one of these too, 
right? So you found each other, and, uh, and you can be easily overwhelmed. And so we can go to both of these poles in our approach to how we navigate the brokenness of the world in which we live. But Jesus invites us into a different way of understanding. And so we, we understand, we got to acknowledge the brokenness of our world, that we live in a world that is held hostage by the powers of sin, decay, and death. Sin and suffering are real, and we live with their consequences. Mary was out of this context, living in these consequences. She wasn't um, in a bubble. She wasn't a, a bubble woman as she proclaimed this praise song to God. She was in the thick of it, both in her nation state, the place of her nation. A few weeks ago, we talked about exile and, and how that fit into what God did with his people. And in a very real sense, Mary, as, as an Israelite, was living in exile in her own land because Israel was not free. It was under the oppressive power of Rome. And so while they might have been in this land, they weren't freed people. They were, it was like home confinement, so to speak. And so here's Mary who grew up under the oppressive hand of Rome uh, ex, um, that, was, that was being animated by Herod specifically over this territory, the place that she called home. And she had to live with this and grapple with this. And what does it mean to be faithful citizen of Yahweh uh, in the midst of this home exile, right? So there's this larger picture of her, of, of her world. And then there's the micro picture of her world. And God turned her world upside down. A pre-married woman with child, like explained that one. And it, it was potentially to her demise, to her death. And so this is her context. She, she understood uh, difficulty. She understood uh, suffering, and that out of this sprang this hope because she knew who the child was within her. And she knew that when the child was born, everything would be different. That through his birth, through the coming of Jesus, God was launching a revolution that would reorient reality and renew all things. This is the language of what's spilling out of her in this hopeful song of praise. And again, you and I can identify with that. We can find ourselves in these spaces. It's the relationship that's gone sideways. It's the relationship that didn't materialize. So how do you grapple with your own singleness? Some days, feeling very alone, right? Sometimes it's this uh, work that didn't go the way that you wanted it to. It's the diagnosis, the cancer. It's the grappling with Depression and anxiety and mental illness. Betrayal, greed, pride. Like all of these things spill into our lives. And we know what it is to go, oh, this world just isn't right. Like you've got a sense that the world isn't right. When we watch nation invade nation, we go, that, that's not right. The world isn't right. When we see greed run rampant, we go, that's not right. There's, there's something not right about that. When we hear about uh, human trafficking, we go, that's not right. right. We've got this sense within us that the world has gone askew. And I want you to pay attention to that for just a moment. For while we experience it oftentimes as lament, uh, God, where are you? 
This is horrible. This is broken. This is hard. We experience it as lament. Let it also be the seedbed of hope because there's something that God has planted within us that longs for the other. We only know this is broken if we have an imagination for that which is repaired. We only have a, an, an idea or an imagination for what is unjust when we've got a, an imagination, a, a sense of what is just and right. And so even in our longing, even in our yearning, there's something that beckons towards hope. And that is, I believe, something that God has planted within us to draw us to himself because he is the focal point of that hope. It's his nature and his character. And Mary spells this out for us. Now, as we look at this here today, again, we're recognizing that we live in a world that is held hostage to sin, decay, and death. But it's into that world. A lot of times we think about what God does is pulling us out of that world. But it was actually Jesus came into that world. God came into that world. And it's into that world that he's launching this revolution that reorders things and renews all creation, right? So God is coming into this. And so as we look at this, I want us to explore uh, some of these lenses. So we see this in, in Mary's um, uh, hymn here, her song of praise. There's how she's experiencing this, but how she's experiencing this is a microcosm, if you will, of what Israel is experiencing. And what Israel is experiencing is a microcosm of God's mercy extended to all of humanity as he restores all things. Because God even said at the very beginning of his relationship with Israel, I'm going to bless you that you would be a blessing to all nations. Right? And so God's intention was always to spread his mercy throughout the entire world because that's where he's doing this work of renewing all things. And so he's launching this revolution. And so let's take a look at, at what, what is Mary seeing just plainly? What, what's coming out in her song here? What is she seeing? She's seen God play out with a couple of, of characters uh, as, as a couple, in a couple of ways. One of those is uh, as, as a strong divine warrior, and the other is as the God of merciful covenant. Both of these things are coming into play here, and we see them in Mary's song. And so we look at this strong divine warrior, the language of the mighty one, savior, he is the one who accomplishes great things, right? And so it is this divine warrior, and as the divine warrior, God acts dynamically against the proud and the powerful. See, it's the proud and the powerful that hold the world by the tail. They're the ones that seem to make the world go round, the one that everything seems to orient around. Like if you're going to succeed in the world, you find yourself and you count yourself and you pursue being at the table with the proud and the powerful. But God is the strong divine warrior acts against the proud and the powerful. He scatters the proud. He brings down the powerful. He takes rulers off their thrones. Like God is not, he, like there are none who will stand and survive opposed to him. There are none who can claim more power than he has. So he brings down the powerful, he brings down the rulers from their thrones, and he sends the rich away empty. Like these are the very ones that are supposed to be making the world work. And this is this reorienta reorientation, this revolution reorients reality. 
Instead of it all hinging on the powerful and the rulers and the wealthy, he exerts his strength in opposition to the powerful, to the rulers, to the rich. Mary sees this strong, divine warrior in the God who is drawing near. And she also sees this God, this merciful God of covenant. You see the covenant language, particularly towards the end. Um, He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful, verse 55, to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Jesus didn't do pinky swear. He made covenant. He made covenant with these people. And God in his mercy is faithful to this covenant. Now, whenever you read covenant, as we understand covenant, I want you to think relationship. Covenant spells out relationship. All the way back to Abraham, uh, the language of covenant is the language of relationship. And God was spelling out how he would relate to his people, how his people would relate to him. That's covenant. And what we see is God is the merciful God of covenant. As God of merciful covenant, he is with his people. God is present with. He is with his people. And in his presence, he is providing. He is lifting up. He is redeeming. He is healing and mending. He is restoring. This is all covered in the language of salvation. This is what he does. And he lifts up the lowly. He extends mercy to those who fear him. Not fears and like, oh God, this is so scary. But fears and reverence, awe, holiness, humility before him. He extends mercy to those who fear him and he fills the hungry. This is the language that Mary is using here, right? So he stands in his strength opposed to the powers of this world and he lifts up those who have been discarded and cast aside. The hungry, the lowly, the humble, right? So Mary is reflecting these things and she's drawing out this character of God that he is strong divine warrior and he is the merciful God of covenant. He is near. And and we see this again. We go all the way back. He is always the God who is present, who is near. And we see this um, in his rescue from Egypt in the Exodus. God led his people out of slavery and he did so by being present with them. The pillar of cloud pillar of fire. Once they were in the wilderness, the tabernacle that was in the midst of them where God's presence was as they settled in the promised land, the temple. God was always near. God was always present. That was always his design. That's the language of covenant. That is his mercy. And so Mary is drawing on those images, even the imagery, even when she talks about the strong arm by his right hand, that's language that's coming out of Exodus. And so what she's tipping her hat to is there's a new Exodus coming. The God of the Exodus is the God who is arriving on the scene here. He is the strong Lord, warrior, divine warrior. He is the merciful God of covenant, both of those in our midst. Now, as we move on from Mary's song and it begins to play out in the Gospels, we've got four accounts of the life of Jesus. And these Gospels play out what it looks like for God to draw near, for the kingdom of God to come near. And so we see these things played out in Jesus' life. Right? So Jesus is born. And what Mary is telling us, when, when, when he comes, when he's born, everything changes. What's changing? 
Well, what's changing is, in a world held hostage by sin, decay, and death, God, through Jesus, is launching a revolution that reorders reality and renews all creation. And so we see in Jesus' life, in his strength, he stands opposed to the proud and the powers that harass the people, whether it was on display in government or whether it was on display in religion. In Israel, we see the confrontation with religion over and over and over again. Those who are leveraging power to the suffering of others. And he stands in his strength in opposition to that. And he toppled... uh, he stood before them. So he even looked uh, like at, at, his, at his death or his trial right before his death. He stood before the most powerful man in that whole region of the world. And as this man kind of let his life dangle before him, Jesus was unfazed. Even leading up to that point, making sure that they understood, any power that you have is given to you by my father. Another point, he, he says, if I cried out to my father, he would send legions of angels to rescue me. Where is the real power? In the robe of Caesar or in the quiet presence of the Lamb of God? Right? He's upending reality. He has questions about taxes. How are we going to pay the taxes? Burp the fish, there's some coins, and away we go. He upended reality in how he approached these things. In his strength, he reoriented reality. And then ultimately, he toppled the power of sin and death. Through his death, substitutionary death, and his resurrection, he toppled the power of sin and death. Sin came against him furiously, assuming that the weapon of death that it has wielded uncountless times before would do its job on this one, the Son of God. And for a moment, it looked like he had. But it was in that very moment that in the cruciform way of the Savior, sin and death were defeated no longer able to hold hostage God's people. We see in Jesus the strong divine warrior. We also see in Jesus the merciful God of covenant. Not only did he live perfectly under the covenant law, but he reminded us that God is present here. In the midst of all this, God is present. The angel said, you will give him the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Exactly. He is God with us. Do you want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. He shows you what the Father looks like. He shows you what love looks like. He is the merciful God of covenant. And he even explains on the last night before he was, uh, the night that he was betrayed as they were celebrating the Passover meal, the meal that was remembering what? The Exodus, God's deliverance from slavery and captivity. And he was writing himself into that story. And part of what he said is, this is my blood of a new covenant. Covenant written in his blood. A new way to relate to God. 
He is the merciful God of covenant. We see his mercy in his presence. He wasn't aloof and away from the people. There were times he withdrew to be alone with the Father in prayer, but he was amidst the people. He was amongst the people. So much so that as he was having a crowd come crush in around him, a woman who was in need had been sick for more than a decade, reached and just touched the hem of his garment, and he felt power leave him. And he stopped, and he noticed, and he came near. Another woman caught in the act of adultery, about to be stoned to death. Mind you, her partner was not about to be stoned to death, right? Because that's the way power works. And he stood in both strength and mercy into this moment, saying no to the powers and principalities of sin, decay, and death and exercising mercy in the life of this woman. He is the God who draws near, and in his drawing near, there is mercy. For in his nearness, there is provision. In, there, in his nearness, there is the filling up. Remember, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats me will never go hungry again. I am the living water. Whoever drinks will never thirst again. Right? So this is the way he described himself. He is the God of merciful covenant and comes near. And so Jesus is born, and there is reason for celebration, and there is hope. Everything that they had been longing for, that the world would be made right again, he is being born, and this reality is coming to be. And yet, it is not yet complete. We live in this weird space, not sure the Bible actually calls it weird space. It has different words. But we understand it is, it's this weird space. For Jesus has come, and in his coming, the revolution has begun. But we live in a world where we are not yet experiencing the fullness of his renewal that comes upon his return. The project, the renewal project has begun with his arrival as a baby. The renewal project is completed upon his return. Okay? And we live in these in-between points, don't we? So hope is not wispy. Hope is not a caricature. Hope is not a facade just to make us feel better in a moment. Hope is born in the Christ child. But it is a hope that is emerging. The revolution has begun, but it's not yet completed. Scripture leads us towards a picture of what happens upon its completion. And I want you to turn there with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, I want to read the first five verses. Listen to these. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Right? Doesn't that even mess with our perspectives of what the future holds? Sometimes we have this picture of like Cupid spirits on clouds with harps. But that's not the picture that scripture gives us. Behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Go back to Genesis. A new heaven and a new earth, this embodied reality. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Now the, the sea was the place of chaos. It was the place of churning. And so there is no chaos. There is no churning. There is no force opposed to God in this new heaven, new earth. There is no longer any sea. Though I still do imagine maybe there's an ocean we can go sit by someday. I, we'll see. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, right, the dwelling place of God, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared it as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Again, we have this picture that God's plan is about our rescue and being taken away when in fact God's plan is a coming near and renewing. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Finally. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And so we get this picture painted of where it's all going. And don't you see the same nature and character of God exhibited here in these words? The strength of a God who accomplishes his will there is nothing that can thwart his will at any turn. This is what we talk about when we talk about the sovereignty of God. God's will is to shape new heaven, new earth, and there's nothing that can thwart it. There is nothing that can stop it. That's how strong he is. New heaven, new earth, new creation, fulfilled, finally. And he is also the merciful God of covenant. He is near. Do you see those words? He will dwell. Finally, God will dwell with his people. He will be their God. They will be his people.